Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Armando Iannucci is a writer and director. He kind of specializes in finding comedy in broken political systems and the people who run them. And he's found most of his material in the people who run democracies. UK cabinet ministers in the thick of it, presidential wannabes in Veep. His latest project is called The Death of Stalin. And it's about the death of Stalin. So how do you laugh at a guy like that? Well, you do some research. And we found out that they circulated joke books, jokes about Stalin and Beria, who was Stalin's chief kind of head of security, jokes about torture and rape and all sorts. And, and, and you could be shot if you had one of these joke books on. And yet somehow the need to make a joke about it, almost as if to say, you haven't got me yet. You know, if I can make fun of you, then you, you, haven't, you haven't taken away my mind, you know, or my spirit. It's Bullseye. Coming up, more from one of my favorite comedy writers ever, Armando Iannucci. He says The Death of Stalin is a film about a power struggle between five terrible people. But every one of them pretty much thinks that he is fighting the good fight. People don't wake up saying, um, what evil thing will I do today? They wake up going, what will I do today? And it's just their predisposition or their misconstrued set of values that, that makes them do something which they think is, in their terms, perfectly fine. Actually, you know, morally, objectively, is completely wrong. But first, movie star Forrest Whitaker. He's been acting for over 30 years now. He's won many, many awards. So when did he decide that acting was the career for him? I don't think I really decided I was going to be an actor until about maybe eight years into my career, you know? Also, he starred alongside John Travolta in Battlefield Earth. Do you remember Battlefield Earth? It's a terrible movie. Forrest Whitaker does. He says the haters should give it a break. For me, I don't really have the same feelings around the movie that the other people do. Because it resonates with something with me. And finally, I'll tell you about The Coup, a hip-hop group that makes Marxist revolution feel humane. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Forrest Whitaker. He's, of course, the star of so many great movies. He has a knack for taking huge figures from history and portraying them as complex, fascinating sometimes really fragile people. He played Charlie Parker in Bird. He played Cecil Gaines, the White House butler, in The Butler. He won an Academy Award for Best Actor for his role as Idi Amin in The Last King of Scotland. Now he's starring as Archbishop Desmond Tutu in the new film The Forgiven, directed by Roland Joffe, who also made the classic 1984 film The Killing Fields. The Forgiven takes place in South Africa, just after the fall of apartheid. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission is in full swing, hearing public and private testimony from the victims and perpetrators of past wrongs. Archbishop Tutu was the chairman of the commission, who was appointed by Nelson Mandela. In the scene from the movie, Archbishop Tutu is in a courtroom 
interrogating a colonel in the South African State Security Agency. Nearby, in what looks almost like a small stage or a jury box, there are a handful of families seated. Each one of them holds a photo of their deceased or disappeared relatives. Do you have nothing to say to these families? To David Lyons' family? Or Simba Goniwe's family? Families who have had no news of their beloved son or their adored husband for years. Do you have nothing to say that would ease their pain? That might give them closure? I will say only this, Archbishop. We were fighting a war against communism. I was battling a threat to us all. Communist regimes harsh. Repressive regimes intent on making Africa theirs. Forrest Whitaker, uh, welcome to Bulls. I'm so uh, excited to get to talk to you. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Um, did you get to meet Desmond Tutu uh, when you were preparing for this role? Yes, I mean, actually, I've known Desmond Tutu for a number of years. I may have met him before. I have a um, conflict resolution organization that works in about five different countries. Actually, our head trainer is in South Africa, so uh, I've talked to him about that and peace building in different times. And but of course, it, it's quite different when you're like working on a part where you're to depict someone, especially someone like him, who's, uh, who's an icon and who like has um, such an aura, such an energy about him. You know? Were you afraid to portray such an iconic man on film? I mean, like, I saw, I, I, I just was uh, Googling around this morning, and, uh, and I saw, like, uh, an article of South Africans who are just ready to be mad that you weren't doing the right South African accent. Um, <laughs> but, like, that's the least of your worries. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? I can understand, too, like, you know, uh, that they would question that. And even for myself, I'm, I kept questioning whether I would at least be able to capture the spirit of the man, and that was what I was hoping that I would be able to do because I think there's some physical differences and di- a number of different things that that are, are different. But, I mean, I wanted to capture his view on the world, his, his understanding of of life because I think the one thing that he is is centered in his beliefs. He's a very highly spiritual man, and I think being such a highly spiritual man, he's able to have the anger and, and passion sometimes to fight against injustice and at the same time have the sense of humor to be able to see that things will find their way in time. He saw the film and he he liked the film and then he actually wrote a statement about the film and about you know how important he thought the film was and that was a, a good relief from him because as an artist I always question myself so it'll be easy for them to like go at me because as soon as they do I'll, I'll start to question myself even more. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I like to imagine that part of that statement, which I have not read, just says, like, it's okay that Forrest Whitaker is basically one of me sitting on another of me's shoulders. <laughs> it's, a nice, it's a nice thing to say. <laughs> but I think it's apparent that you spent attention on the physical qualities of this person who is very physically 
different from you. I mean, he's a kind of, I mean, as I remember him, kind of a small dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're a big dude. I mean, you like played high school football and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I watched, I mean, I did study the way he moves, the way he walks, and the way he gestures, and, you know, and, and the way he speaks and the timbre of his voice. But still, there's, you're right, there's things that uh, I'm a much larger person than he is, and a, a different facial structure and all that. You speak with a very light voice. At least you're speaking with me with a very light voice right now. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you speak that way because you are a big guy? I'm also I'm also pretty big, so like I I understand the way that being big in the world kind of affects everything around you. I don't know, maybe. You know, I mean, I remember when I was in IT school and uh I had a teacher uh, his name was Jim Wilson. He used to do speech. And he's, he put me against the wall. And he was like pressing into my chest. And he's saying, you need to speak. You know, speak. And he's like, you know, and my voice would be like bigger and boomier. He says, use the voice. Use your power. Use your power. And he didn't feel like I was using my uh, power as an actor and as an artist. And then I was uh, running from it. Maybe he's right. I don't know. When did you decide you were going to be an actor? I don't think I really decided I was going to be an actor until about maybe eight years into my career. You know? so. <laughs> All right. Let me let me rephrase that question for us. <laughs> when did you decide you would like to become an actor? I decided I wanted to explore acting when I was like actually auditioned for Under Milkwood. I got the part of the manager. And that's when I kind of said, okay, this I like, I like doing this a little better than the classical voice and classical music. And then that summer, I got cast in a play in, uh, call it at the Orpheum Theater, uh, the Beggar's Opera. And uh, I was accepted in, into both the music and the acting conservatories at USC. So uh, I went over there and I started studying. I guess I started to decide that I wanted to explore acting. I wasn't quite sure if it was what I should be doing. You know, I wanted to see if I had like real, I guess. I don't know, aptitude or if it was part of, you know, it was supposed to be my destiny to do something like that. And so that's why I say it took me a long time to finally decide that this was something that I was to do and that I would continue doing because my purposes for things are are amorphous, meaning that I have like a purpose of like what I want, how I want to live my life or what I'm trying to understand. And I think it's trying to find the right ways to do so. And uh, that was one way. And even tomorrow, maybe I'll figure out another. One of the things that I liked about your portrayal of Desmond Tutu in this movie is this man may literally be a saint. Mm. Um, And I think it would be easy to tell the story of the beatific, magical man, Desmond Tutu. Right. Um, Because, like, yeah, I mean, I shook hands with the man, and I remember it vividly from when I was nine years old. He is a beatific, magical man. Right. But, uh, you know, his story in this movie is about dealing with his own anger. Right. And I wonder how you how you approach that as an actor, someone who has this extraordinary reaction to his own feelings, something that is um, but they but that they are just normal human feelings. Yeah, I think. You're right. I mean, I think one of the things that he's struggling with is he's faced with his own question of whether he he can live by what he's what he preaches, his own faith. You know, which is uh, that he can that you can't forgive, 
and that you can love even the most heinous uh, crimes or or the most you know destructive individuals. It was something I was reading recently that Martin Luther King said when he was talking about uh, uh, and this is this is a, this is a paraphrase of a quote: "When your enemy is vulnerable, to not take advantage of that vulnerability." to not try to harm, to not try to hurt. It's a quote. I wish I had it with me right now so I could give it to you. But it was really interesting to look that, that that was one of the keys that he was talking about when he was talking about love, was the ability to be able to, even when your enemy, those have done things to you, done wrongs to you, hurt you, said bad things against you, whatever, that when they get in a position where they need you, and he even says when they just need a, to get a new job or when they need to do this, where you could easily sabotage their advancement as a human being, that you choose not to. This is a part of the creative aspect of love, you know, and I'm trying to understand that. I'm continuing to try to understand that because I continually get trials and tribulations in my own life where people do things that are harmful and hurtful in some ways to me, but I still like I'm trying to understand them. And at times it could even feel like dysfunctional and and, and uh, uh, almost dependent, codependent to try to like be like, no, they did that. But I know that inside of them, they're a good person. And I know they tried to harm me, but to, at the same time, recognize that there's still something divine in each individual. Even when I was in South Central, I remember very seriously saying to my mom, I said, Ma, you know, if you look at people really closely and you listen to them, you can tell where they're from and what's happened to them. My mother said, oh, really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I spent my life pursuing that same premise in some ways. I want to talk a little bit about some of the other amazing roles that you've had in your career. One of my favorite movies, I was going to say one of my favorite movies of yours, but I'm just going to straight up say one of my favorite movies is a movie called Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, uh, which was uh, directed by Jim Jarmusch in the, uh, I guess, 1999. Yeah. And it's... (laughs) It's one of those movies that's very difficult to explain to people because yeah. it doesn't sound like a real movie. <laughs> um, basically, you are the title character mm-hmm. and you are a, a hitman and a sort of samurai, like a like a, a warrior. Yes. And but you live in a contemporary city um and you know it's like a it's like a crime drama in some ways i mean and in some ways it's a in some ways it's a comedy as well but it really hinges on your performance as you know at the center of this film as this as this actual you know, you have to believe in Bushido or whatever, mm-hmm. and we have to believe that you believe that with no explanation. There's no. It's not as though everybody is. There's like a lot of scenes of other people going like, "Oh yeah, that's Ghost Dog. He's like this because blah 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 blah." Right. Right. Like you're just in that world and you're natural to that world. Did that role come to you through audition, or was that something that uh, Jim Jarmusch wrote for you? Uh, Jim wrote the movie for me. I mean, he, uh, in some ways, was thinking that this character was his representation of me. Uh, what happened was we met 
and um, we said we'd like to work together. And about a year later, he said, you know, let's, sit, let's can we get together and talk? And he had an idea. And uh, then he proceeded to, like, for months, for the for about a year, like, meet me in L.A. And we would just have, like, these sometimes four or five-hour conversations. And then he would go back to New York. And then one day he said, okay, I have enough. I'm going to go write the script. And he wrote Ghost Talk. It, it has some thematics that we were talking about even in a different way. You know, I think the movie deals with purpose and whether you can live and die by what you believe. And uh, I think that was the test that, that goes on with with him. Uh, it's quite challenging film, but it taught me a lot because obviously the character is quite different than me and it taught me a lot uh, as I was working on it, you know, to try to understand some different things. I was trying to think. I saw this movie when I was a senior in high school, and I was trying to think of why it was so resonant for me as an 18-year-old. And I think maybe it had to do with time that I spent as a teenager in the city that I grew up in. You know, I used to walk around a lot Mm -hmm. as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a quality that you can have from living in a city that is your home, which is, you know, in a way you can be, you can be both alone and not alone and in a place where you're totally anonymous, but also where you entirely belong, like it all belongs to you in a way, or at least it feels that way. Sure. And, and you to it. And that felt like, a, I, I, it seemed like maybe that was the thing about Ghost Dog that must have animated me so that, you know, he has this quality of loneliness, certainly, and he is living, you know, an ascetic life. Yes. But there is a way that you relate to the city when you live in the city that I thought was very beautifully observed in that film as, you know, wild and surreal and ridiculous as it is. I mean, I think, you, like you said, you were being, if you were alone like that, walking on your own, I mean, you, you, one of the things that was challenging about the character, to play the character, was the silence. And that's what I, the movie really taught me about was silence. And you see him just driving sometimes in the movie, like for five minutes, just looking at different things and moving forward through that. And I think there's something that people can understand. I think of that scene where um, you walk past the RZA who made the music for the film mm. and you guys just kind of dap each other and keep walking. Yeah. Um, you know, this, it that, has... That, that, that's, a diff- that's interesting because Ghost Dog represents also like an urbanite. There's like a number of urban figures like that for myself, he reminds me of like the Vietnam vets that I knew as a as a kid, like my cousin and stuff wearing their fatigue jackets and having come back from the war and living in the community, not doing, you know, not knowing what they did, seemingly mysterious, but but yet they exist. And the meeting that he has with, with uh, RZA is like he's, we recognize that there are many of them. There's not one. There's many of them like that, you know. And uh, that, that, was, that was an important statement to make because this. There are, you know, like 
a lot of kids like you say, like you were, wandering, just looking. It's a big thing about society right now. We have to start to claim some of the kids, too, that are wandering and trying to find their place. We'll have more with Forrest Whitaker when we return from a quick break. Still to come, Forrest Whitaker gives me the business for having the temerity to ask Forrest Whitaker about Battlefield Earth. Fair enough, Forrest Whitaker. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about Here and Now. We cover the day's most essential news with context so you know the why and what's next. A fast-paced snapshot of the world every day. Listen to Here and Now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Forrest Whitaker. He's starring as Archbishop Desmond Tutu in the new film The Forgiven. It's in theaters now. Forrest, we've spent the better part of an hour talking about some of the incredible highlights of your career. But I also saw in the movie theater the movie Battlefield Earth, uh-huh. which is, um, and I mean no disrespect to you, definitely the worst movie I've ever seen in a movie theater. <laughs> That's funny. I think I think uh, the movie... It was it was possibly a little lost between being able to have the the finances to be a high tech movie and not and, and not deciding that it was going to be a low tech movie and just be uh, you know simple and on the ground and not try to find ways to appear larger. Um, for me, it was interesting because as a as a kid in high school, one well, of some of the first lines I ever remember saying, you know, in a I definitely did in a class other than by myself somewhere in my room was uh, from the island of Dr. Monroe. You know, in the island of Dr. Monroe, the character, he says, I am I am not an animal, I'm a man. You know, he's like, and uh, that that reminds me, that, that so the character of Kerr, which is the character I played in, in Battlefield, was me kind of almost playing tribute to that. And uh, so for me, I don't really have the same feelings around the movie that, the other people do because <laughs> it, it resonates with something with me and then like you know some of the movies that I do that people might say why is he doing that but I'm going I might be doing it for a totally different reason and you know that reminds me of something or trying to understand something or whatever that may be abstract to somebody else so I, I, I get I got you though Forrest <laughs> great great news I'm going to play a clip from it here <laughs> and Funny. I what. I was going to set it up, but I think it's probably even better without the setup. I'm going to be frank with you. Okay. <laughs> Man animals operating machinery. <laughs> Have you blown a head gasket? <laughs> I will be the laughing stock of the universe. Which is why you should have me take a group of man animals with equipment out to a remote area. Better that you don't know where. And try and train them. Have them do some test mining. That way, if it doesn't work out, no one will know. <laughs> right. And if it 
does work, I will be vaporized. It is against the law. According to regulations, a planet ship faced with a profit-threatening situation is relieved of all other ordinances to pursue, to protect, and to acquire said profits. And there you have it. What I had, I haven't seen the movie since I saw it. In I the have movie to theater. see it again because I, t- I was trying <laughs> to remember that scene. You know, uh, I don't have. You know, it's funny too because like the other day, uh, I went into a, we were going to do a. Oh, I went into a pitch meeting uh, uh, to talk to them about a TV series that I was thinking about doing, and like the writer, he saved like that he was going to say, and you know, Last King of Scotland, the Butler, and. Uh, Battlefield Earth, you know, that was his big joke. And everybody <laughs> bust out laughing in the room. I was like, what's the problem? <laughs> I don't have a problem. I don't have the problem you guys have with the movie. And I, and he, later he was like, I just could I didn't want to tell you because I thought you might tell me no. You know, and I was like, why? Well, you know, I don't have a problem. It's funny. So, so it's funny to me. I, I think if it were, if it were like a, uh, if it were a dour, terrible film, I wouldn't be talking to you about it 18 years later. If it wasn't remarkable, if it wasn't like astonishing, if it hadn't burned itself in its memory through the verve that everyone put but through into it. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Did you not have more interest in like the butler or one of the other ones? <laughs> no, because cause, cause, cause I don't have a problem with it, but I'm just like wondering what the intention, what's your, what's your intention? I just think it's I just think <laughs> to me like one of the amazing things about movies which are such a collaborative art form mm-hmm. is that and is that no one who works in movies is incompetent it is way too hard to be incompetent and get a job because it's all gig based so you know everybody you know, there are exceptions. You know, there are millionaires who direct their own films and pay for them themselves. But, like, if you're making a real movie, everyone has to be good at their jobs or else they would never get another job. And God knows you're good at your job. God knows John Travolta and Barry Pepper are great at their jobs. You know, everyone involved in the film is amazing at their job. And it's just remarkable to me that sometimes it goes wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, sometimes it doesn't work. And that is like the most, the least that it has worked in anything that I've ever seen. Uh, And, but I enjoyed it. Like, I, (laughs) like, like it's, it's, it's really enjoyable in its disastrousness. You know what I mean? That's why I say I, I genuinely have no ill will about the movie. Oh, no, it's okay. You know, like I, I got in Ghost Dog first, right? That's one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> I know, but you could have like went to the crying game. You could have yeah, went to yeah, like, yeah. But no, you chose that. You know, but I'm like, I, I, it's it's should be provocative, but I mean, I I just don't have a, the same that's feeling fair. about it. That's very, <laughs> that's very, that's more than fair, Forrest. I am so grateful that you took the time to come on Bullseye. Thank you so much for doing this. Sure, no problem. My pleasure. It's good talking to you. Forrest Whitaker, one of the greats. The Forgiven is playing now in select theaters. My all-time Forrest Whitaker jam is Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. All-timer. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm really happy to have Armando Iannucci back on the show. He's the creator of so much amazing comedy. He created the TV show The Thick of It for the BBC in 2005, which is 
a political comedy about the fictional Department of Social Affairs and Citizenship in England. It's one of my absolute favorite TV shows. Every scene of every episode is an amazing, hilarious swirl of, I guess, well-meaning incompetence, plus some really, truly creative swearing. Yes, let's cause a little bit of friction. Let's fire someone. What about Glenn? No, no. you can't just fire Glenn well, like we that. Could, we can't. could fire Glenn. Shall I get his file? No, I've got a list. It's... See, there you are, he's got a list. You're a new broom. You're sweeping up trouble with one end, broom handling incompetent staff up the tunnel with the other. So, Malcolm, how do we play it at The Guardian? Smile, be gay. Smile, smile, smile. The Thick of It was spun into a movie called In the Loop, which is also pretty fantastic. And then in 2012, he created a sort of semi-American remake of the show called Veep. Veep now has 17 Emmy Awards, including a record-breaking six in a row for the brilliant Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Iannucci left Veep following its fourth season, but he's kept busy. He just wrote and directed his second feature film. It's called The Death of Stalin. It's set in Russia in 1953. Joseph Stalin is dying from a cerebral hemorrhage, and around him there's a power struggle in the Politburo. That's his advisory committee. That's the central conflict of the film, who will lead Russia. There's his deputy secretary, George Malenkov, played by Jeffrey Tambor, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, played by Michael Palin, Lavrenti Beria, the head of the Internal Security Force, played brilliantly by Simon Russell Beale, and Nikita Khrushchev, played by Steve Buscemi. The characters are all classic Iannucci. They're ambitious, they're chaotic, they're all deeply, deeply insecure. And like in Veep or The Thick of It, they betray one another at every turn, then feign concern and friendship when it's politically convenient. Except that in the case of the death of Stalin, the stakes are much, much higher. The losers could get sent to prison camp or shot. Let's take a listen to a clip from the beginning of the movie. Stalin is collapsed on the floor of his dacha. His body lies in his bedroom for hours while the Politburo stands around him, worrying about what to do. The power vacuum that's been created is obvious as the staff maneuvers for power while trying to keep up appearances. The first voice you hear is Steve Buscemi as Nikita Khrushchev. Which doctor have you called? Oh, well, the subject is currently under discussion. Yes, as acting general secretary, I think that, uh, well, the committee should decide. The, com- the committee? But our actual general secretary is lying in a puddle of indignity. I mean, I think he's saying, get me a doctor now. No, I don't, I don't agree. I think, uh, I think we should wait until we're quartered. Quartered? The room is only 75% conscious. You wearing pajamas? Yes, so? Why? Uh, because I act, Lavrenti, decisively and with great speed. I said you'd be tested, and right now you're being tested by a shouty man wearing pajamas. Have you got a nappy under those, too? Too late for him. <laughs> Armando Iannucci, welcome back to Bullseye. Hi. Good it's nice back to again. see you. Congratulations on the movie. It's totally great. Oh, thank you very much. There we go. There's our poster. Yeah. yeah. I l- <laughs> that would be, you're going to have a hard time selling tickets on the basis of that endorsement. <laughs> that and banned in Russia. Yeah, I mean, two. at least try and get Elvis Mitchell to say something nice. <laughs> Somebody some people care about. Yeah. Um I like what I like about that scene where they find Stalin nearly dead yes. on the ground. Yes. Is the extent to which it is urine centric. 
Yes, he is lying in a puddle of his own uh, indignities in the <laughs> clip that is, is urine. There's yeah. a lot of like uh, there's a lot of like people starting to kneel, yep. realizing their <laughs> knee would go and pee and then get standing back up. And then we get into the question of seniority, who when they get to lift the body, you know, which side do people who's going to go on the pee side and who's not? <laughs> and but a lot of it is true. That's the thing. And, you know, in Stalin did. I mean, he was killed by his own terror in that he he terrified his guards and said that they were never to disturb him so when he fell over with a stroke which is what happened guards outside held a heard a thump but they were too scared to knock on the door and they just left him there for a whole night and then day and then as in the clip when the politicians arrive they have a debate over whether to get a doctor or not because stalin had put a lot of the kremlin doctors on a list he was going to get them shot because he was convinced they were out to poison him so they just didn't, they were too scared to get, in case they got the wrong doctor. And, 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 and who, 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 ironically, would have um, cured Stalin at, to the extent that Stalin would then find out that they did get the wrong doctor and then shoot the person who got the doctor. You know, the, the <laughs> thinking that was going on there was just, went round to these hopes, you know. I mean, it is a, um, <laughs> it, it is like a classic bureaucratic thinking scene when they yes. have the insight collectively mm. that if they get a bad that there are that Stalin has had killed or jailed all of the good doctors yes. because he believed them to be yes. plotting to poison him. Yes. And so if they get one of the other doctors and he does a good job, well, then great. They got a good doctor to help him. Yes. If he does a bad job and he dies, then they don't have to worry about yes, it. Yes, Stalin won't find out. Yes. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so in the end, they get a doctor, you know, but they just round up some old retired doctors. It are... is it is very different stakes to mm. your other work. I mean, you've mm. done a lot of uh, the last 10, 15 years now, you've done a lot of humor about the ways that kind of systems and bureaucracies paralyze people. Yeah. And they're all fundamentally good people as well, I'd say. You know, they're politicians, but they're not criminals. Right. You know? and, and the mistakes they make are slightly either of their own doing or, 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 or the consequences really are reflect on them in terms of the embarrassment or the, you know, the awkward position they put them in. this, you know, if someone makes a mistake, they will either kill someone or be killed. You know, that's so the stakes are very, very high. I mean, this, that's, yeah. that's like a, that's extraordinarily different. I think that mm. there there is a whole world of comedy, especially from the UK, that's mostly about people trying to avoid being embarrassed. Yes. Yes. And a lot, some of I your that's work, all comedy, your, <laughs> falls into that category, yeah. right? It's like yeah. people going to extraordinary lengths to avoid embarrassment, which yes. dovetails beautifully with you know a democratic government where yeah. people are just trying to you know functionaries are just trying to function. That's right. Just get through the day without being found out. Basically, yes. is like not being found wanting. But what happens when the consequence is not that you are embarrassed in front of people, but rather that you are uh, taken in front of a wall and shot? Uh, it's a different sort of comedy. It's, uh, <laughs> and also, you know, I made this film because I, 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 you know, all sorts of reasons, but I wanted to bring, take myself out of my comfort zone here. And, and I knew I was making a film in which not all the scenes would be funny. 
Um, I mean, it's it's funny throughout. Uh, I hope. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. It is funny throughout, but it's also um, there's some long dry stretches. It's it's, it's worry. worry it's worrying throughout. You know, right. it's anxiety inducing throughout. And there are scenes specifically where there are no jokes, you know, in that I wanted, I think really because it, it's based on true events and, you know, millions of people were affected, millions of people were killed. And the first thing I said when we went into production was, I think we have to be very respectful of what happened to these people. This is no joke. So the comedy is almost, you know, to simplify it, the comedy is indoors, is in the Kremlin, and the consequences of that comedy is played for real outdoors, out on the streets. I mean, I have to say that when you... Because you were in the process of making this film the last time you were on the show. Yeah. And when you described it to me, um, you know, in a very limited way, what I imagined was a a farce, you know, like a full-on farce. And there are elements of farce here. Yeah. But it's it's not. it's not. It's not a zany madcap romp. It's fast slash documentary, isn't it? <laughs> and I mean, it's not even that like, yeah. um, you know, like the uh, like in the Chris Morris movie Four Lions, mm. which is about a terror cell. Yeah. Um, the people in the terror cell are bumbling. Yeah. And yeah. they're dopes. You know, yeah. they're dopes just like anybody else. And that's what makes it funny is, oh, they have this terrifying power, but they're yeah. dopes just like anyone else. The characters in this film aren't exactly no. dopes no, either. No, they're in charge. And the thugs. And they've been, you know, they've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years. It's it's the old perennial, you know, struggle for succession. It's it's the Godfather and Game of Thrones and ancient Rome. And it's, you know, the emperor is dead. And who's going to be the next emperor? I mean, what they used to do in Rome, of course, when they when the emperor died was um, and this happens in all big tyrannies, really, is when they, you know, when the tyrant dies, the potential successors all race as fast as they can to get to the capital. And then the first one there just starts killing everyone else, every other competitor, (laughs) so that there is absolutely no question that he's won. You know, and it's that. That's that's the stakes that, you know, and, and it must have been terrifying growing up under that kind of system and that mentality, really. There's everybody, there's this amazing scene where everybody is at the dacha where he died. Mm. There are all the Politburo is there. Yeah. And Stalin's daughter, who's the less insane of his two children, Mm -hmm. shows up and she's like getting out of a car and there's a literal race to greet her. That's right. Everyone wants to be the first person to greet her. Um, <laughs> and the idea of these sort of middle to elderly, middle-aged to elderly men are running through the forest to be the first to greet her and not look like they're utterly exhausted. Somebody said um, it was like a parody of um, a, a walk and talk scene from the West Wing, <laughs> like because they're, you know, one of the characters turns to the other and says, how can you run and plot at the same time, right? <laughs> yes. But like yeah. it, it really does, you know, it's like an inversion of the heroic vision of those yeah, kinds of shows. It's the, it's the West Wing with guns. Yeah. <laughs> it's the West Wing as if produced by N- the NRA. <laughs> Did you talk to anybody who had lived in the or do you have anyone in your in your life who had lived in this kind of world a world where yeah. the state 
was a you know was a constant traumatizing potentially deadly force in oh yeah lives. I mean a number of things I mean we went out to Moscow and did a lot of research just first of all just visually I wanted to get the look absolutely right so you know we went to Stalin's dacha went to the Kremlin went to the apartments you know looked at old Moscow and get that right um but also we spoke to people who'd grown up under Stalin and whose parents or grandparents had you know, been taken to gulags and, you know, and they told us little elements that we put in the movie that you would go to bed at night wearing lots of layers of clothes so that if you were dragged out in the middle of the night off to the gulag, you could at least, and you weren't given time to pack. If you had several layers of clothes on you, you had those. I met um, in London after a screening, I met a family, a Russian family, and he, the, uh, the, the, uh, the the father was 14 in Moscow when Stalin died and he, he walked into Moscow to go and see the body lying in state and he got caught up in the disturbances in the film there's the great crowd disturbances and it's again based on true events where you know 1400 1500 people were killed and he was caught up in all that and uh, and he said he said two, he said two things the film it's true and it's funny, you know. <laughs> and we found out that they circulated joke books, jokes about Stalin and Beria, who was Stalin's chief kind of head of security, jokes about torture and rape and all sorts. And 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 you could be shot if you had one of these joke books on. And yet somehow the need to make a joke about it, almost as if to say, you haven't got me yet. You know, if I can make fun of you, then you you haven't. You haven't taken away my mind, you know, or my spirit. Um, interesting, yeah. We'll continue my conversation with Armando Iannucci after we return from a break. Still to come, he'll tell me about why doing satire these days is harder than ever. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Independent Lens, an Emmy award-winning documentary series featuring films from across the country that remind us we're all neighbors. See their unique stories Monday nights at 10, 9 central on PBS and streaming free on independentlens.org. Presented by ITVS. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about On Point, the NPR show where we take you behind the headlines. On Point talks with newsmakers and real people about issues that matter most. Listen to On Point now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Armando Iannucci, the creator of Veep, In the Loop, and The Thick of It. His new movie, The Death of Stalin, is out now. I want to play another scene from uh, my guest Armando Iannucci's new movie, The Death of Stalin. And this is the funeral of Stalin. Mm. So he has died. There's a spoiler for you. In the death of Stalin. The clue is in the title. Yes. (laughs) So and all of the various members of the Politburo are all kind of arrayed in a line in Mm. front of the flowers and the casket and all this stuff, right? Mm. And... um, so in this scene, there are some priests coming in from the Russian Orthodox Church who had previously been excluded. Yes, banned, banned under Stalin, yes. Um, but, you know, part of this idea of we're going to reform after Stalin is we invite them to the funeral. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, there's a game of telephone going on along this line of people uh, who are all members of the Politburo. Do you invite them? No. 
Ask Beria if he invited the bishops. Don't give me orders. Ask Beria if he invited the bishops. Did you invite the bishops? Yes. Yes. Well? He said yes. I'm going to give everyone in Red Square a voucher permitting one kick each to his stupid face. Is he asking for some delicious hay? No, he said something quite complicated about a voucher system. Ask Nikita, why in God's ass he invited the bishops? No, I've already explained why he... You tell him... Never mind. Swap. No. Just swap with me. I said no. We can make it look like it's part of the ceremony. <laughs> the then obviously it won't work here, but the then is the biggest visual joke in the film involving Steve Buscemi. Which but I won't is, spoil it. Yes, yeah. okay. I, then I won't spoil it either. Oh, but yeah, it's real it. funny. Yeah. It's real fun and funny. <laughs> I know because we've talked about it before. What a big fan of the Larry Sanders show you ah, are! Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which I think is you know one of the five or so best television shows ever. Ever. And um, Jeffrey Tambor, who plays the um, acting premiere, yes, he is. Um, he 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 ascends to the premiership by virtue of having been the the vice chairman. Yes, and uh, just you know somebody dies and and he, he's kind of got to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I definitely see some parallels between Hank Kingsley, Absolutely. his character yeah, from yeah, the Larry yeah. Sanders show, who is a, just a pathetic. Sweet, pathetic toady. Yeah. Um, that great episode where he has to front, the, where he hosts the show. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I love about that episode where he hosts the show is that he does a good job. That's the genius of it. He does a good job. So he gets to do it again. And that's when it all goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting because when we were reading the script, it's funny, I'd asked Jeffrey because Jeffrey's great, you know, f- from Hank and, and Arrested Development. So, you know, I. I I was so pleased that he he said yes, but it was as we were discussing the character that it both dawned on us that Malenkov, yeah, he's so, he's Hank, isn't he? Really, yeah. And I was I was pleased that Jeffrey ventured that rather than me because I didn't want to just keep going on about Hank at him. I think maybe the best performance in the film is Simon Russell Beale, mm. uh, who mm. plays uh, Beria, who is the um, like security. Guy, yes, the state murderer. That's right, <laughs> the yeah, murderer yeah. in chief. Yeah. yeah, he does some torturing too. Yeah, and Simon is—I mean, he's well known in the UK as a stage classical, stage Shakespearean, fantastic stage actor. Which is a thing they have in the UK. Just for our American audience, <laughs> is well-known classical stage actors, <laughs> and he very rarely does uh, TV and film. And I instantly thought of him for this part. The first part I cast actually was Simon as Barry because uh, you know, I knew he would be great, and he also can physically look a, a, a bit like Barrier. But also, I liked the idea that Barrier. We don't have a, a notion of Barrier in the West. We don't have a, a conception of this character, and I kind of liked the idea that the film audience was not getting an actor where they were going, "Oh, that's that's him from." That film, isn't it? That he was in the, you know, you're actually going, who is this? Well, it's Beria. That's who it is. And uh, and and then I like the idea that him against up against Steve Buscemi are two very different types of performer, playing two very different characters. And I, the idea was in the course of the, you know, hundred minutes of the film, one person is the good guy, and one person is the bad guy, as it were. 
to be very simplistic about it. But as the film progresses, you see subtle shifts in both those personas so that there's a very different feel to them by the end of the film. And I think it would be easy for him to play this character who is a brutal murderer the way that you would expect a bad guy in a Die Hard movie to be. Yeah. Which is to say, like, rubbing his hands together. Let's murder all of the the serfs will be murdered by us. Yeah. Um, But no, he he has to play it as human, really, because that's what these people were, (laughs) you know, and and there is that thing, you know, the banality of evil. I mean, people, people people don't wake up saying, um, what evil thing will I do today? They wake up going, what will I do today? And it's just their predisposition or their misconstrued set of values that that makes them do something which they think is, in their terms, perfectly fine. Actually, you know, morally, objectively, is completely wrong. I mean, it seems like people, to some extent, mm. just operate in the the whole world as a series of patterns and yeah. deviations from patterns. And so when something is... Yeah normal even if it's not normal even if it's murdering thousands of people or millions of people in the case of the you know stalin over time yeah um it you know do you just are dealing with managing deviations from that crazy normal and isn't it strange that whenever you see these people on trial they 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 all behave the same way which is they're outraged that they should be put on trial you see it in all the kind of footage of, you know, Gaddafi or in The Hague. And they're all saying, no, 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 you, this whole, this trial is a farce. You are conducting a farce. How dare you? You know, and they genuinely believe it. That's the thing. They're not putting this on. They genuinely, they've talked themselves into over the years, believing that what they think is right. And therefore, anyone who does anything contrary to that is, is wrong, is, is an enemy of the people. I like that you have taken that information. Yes, it is a farce. Yeah, it's called the Death of Stalin, <laughs> directed by Armando Iannucci. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear another scene from the Death of Stalin. So this is um, uh, this is. Let's see, which one am I going to play? I'm going to play this one with Molotov in it. Okay, here we go. So. <laughs> There is this immense power struggle that's going on. Yeah. Uh, there's Beria on one side who controls the uh, the in sort of like intelligence and sta- yeah. and police state. The sort of KGB, really, as it were. Exactly. And then there's Khrushchev, who aspires to be a reformer and is also, you know, everyone in the movie is pretty weasley. Um, so he's 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 not the he's not the purest of heroes himself, yeah. right? And so Khrushchev has run, literally run up the stairs to uh, visit uh, Vyacheslav Molotov, yes. who's played by Michael Palin. Yes. Khrushchev, played by Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. The elevator's broken, so he's, he's throwing yeah. up from exhaustion, from running up the stairs, yeah. because uh, Palin's character, Molotov, who was on the kill list 24 hours earlier yes. is now an essential vote in this bureau yes. as yes. to what's going to happen. And uh, they're in this scene, um, they're in the toilet. Yes. Uh, they're not in the bowl of the toilet. They're in the toilet Pretty room. Pretty close to it, though. The bathroom, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and they're talking to each other, trying to figure out what to do. And you will hear them flushing the toilet to cover in case anyone is listening in. That's right. Listen. 
I wanted to invite you to tomorrow's committee meeting. Meeting? What meeting? Why didn't I know about a meeting? Stalin and Beria put you on a list. Stalin? Oh, I must have wronged him so badly. What did I do? Oh, no, nothing. Don't you see? Beria, he wants you out. Now, I've been talking with Comrade Bulganin. No, no. This I is... think he's right. We can outvote no, them. No, no, no. This is factionalism, Nikki. No, no, it's Stalin not. Stalin didn't like oh, factionalism. Stalin is dead. I've seen inside of him. For f- sake, we have to act. I can't believe he's gone. Oh. Wait for it to fill up. <laughs> Apartments. <laughs> That's. <laughs> We had to do the apartments. This is, I mean, this is true. Stalin had these apartments built opposite the Kremlin to put the hierarchy of the Communist Party, you know, the upper, as a, almost like a reward. They had these luxury apartments and they had their own shopping center and cinema and so on. But the real reason was so he could get them all in the one building. So it's just one building he, he can bug. And he's got everyone. That 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 was the that was the reason. I okay. So you have uh, there are a lot of descriptions uh, uh, in criticism. Of what a brilliant political satirist you are. Um, so congratulations on that. First of all, great. Thank you very much. S- second of all, <laughs> um, I, I you know we've talked about the fact that you don't think particularly that satire is a particularly effective way to change the world. Mm. Um, what do you think satire is when making jokes at people's expense by doing homework may or may not even ha- g- have any purchase? Like when people don't care about it, you know what I mean? Like when the target doesn't care about. Yeah. Are you talking about Donald Trump? I I don't know. I'm a journalist, so I'm I'm pretty. <laughs> I you know I, I have I have all perspectives at all times. I mean I think I, I I'm so glad I'm not doing Veep now, and I I can see why they've taken Selena Meyer away from the White House because any attempt to do a a fictional version of what's happening now would never be as absurd as what's happening now, and I think the the comics or satirists or whatever however you want to describe the ones who are having most effect are the ones who are like journalists, you know, John Oliver and Samantha Bee and Seth Meyer and, and, and all those who've got teams of researchers who spend a lot of time and a lot of work actually digging out the facts and and just out, outlining the facts for our entertainment. Just constantly kind of resetting yeah. to the structure of real information. Exactly, because if Trump is saying that the news is fake, then it's it's the comedians are going, okay, well we'll we'll do the news then. Um, we'll just put a bit more effort, and, and that seems to be what's having most impact, um, rather than doing a, a kind of parody of Trump and and, and all that sort of thing. I think. You know, you've done all this material about the hopelessness mm. of bureaucracy. Mm. Um, 
the kind of inherent hopelessness of bureaucracy, whether it's the death of Stalin, which is just about these committee meetings. Mm. It's basically a series of committee meetings uh, or whether it's Veep in the thick of it and Mm. in the loop, which are about the, um, you know, the democratically elected equivalents. Do you actually have any faith? And most comedians have no faith in systems or power structures. Oh, I do. I, I do. Do you? I, and, you know, you write about what it is that interests you. Uh, and I've always been, you know, I'm passionate about politics. I want, I mean, I spent the last election, I spent a lot of time just trying to persuade young first-time voters to register to vote and get out and vote because it, it disturbed me that they were the lowest uh, percentage of, of voters that the elderly in the UK, 80% of them vote, uh, whereas 18 to 24-year-olds only, you know, it was something as low as 35, 36% of them voted. So, uh, and and the reason the election caused such an upset was that actually young people did, not through my doing, but young people did, I think because of the Brexit vote the year before, a lot of people woke up not having voted in that election, in that referendum, and and realised actually voting does make a difference. I remember my father was, um, uh, he grew up in just outside Naples, and when he was 16, 17, during the Second World War, he joined, he was, he he wrote for an anti-fascist newspaper, and when the war broke out, he became a partisan and fought against the fascists and against Mussolini. When he moved to the UK, he never took out British citizenship, and I said, why don't you? Because you you can't vote unless you've got a passport and stuff. And he said, ah, last election I remember, Mussolini got in. And that was his way of saying, look, don't think democracy is perfect. You know, Hitler got in on a plebiscite. Um, it's not perfect. It has to be defended and participated in and 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 supported and 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 renewed and refreshed. Otherwise, you know, it starts fraying at the edges, and then you get strange things happen in elections, and 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 people come in who do strange things to democracy. Well, here's the good news: because this is public radio, I was required to get you at some point to say plebiscite, and you did. There we go. So yes. we can wrap it up now. Excellent. We're done. Yeah. Armando Inuche, thank you so much for coming back on Bullseye. It's always so great to talk to you. And I am always so excited to see your new work. I'm I'm such a fan and admirer of it. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Armando Iannucci, ladies and gentlemen. The Death of Stalin is in theaters now. Make sure to go see it. It is great. It's hilarious. Amazing. We like to finish every episode of Bullseye with a culture tip from the host, who is me. It's called The Outshot. In the late 80s and early 90s, hip-hop went through a verdant spring. Green shoots popped up everywhere. Pop rap, gangster rap, alternative rap, Afrocentric rap, super lyrical rap, and political rap. The coastal leaders of the political wing were Public Enemy in New York and Ice Cube in L.A., two totally ferocious acts who also leavened their ferociousness with a generous helping of humanity. P.E. had Flava Flav, who was the goofy, clock-wearing compliment to Chuck D.'s booming pronouncements. And Ice Cube made a career of alternating between barbecues and snarls. But as rap got slicker over the course of the 90s, the more politically-minded acts got very serious and ultra-didactic. 
dead prez and immortal technique were ferocious, but their tone wasn't particularly humane. Except maybe for that one dead prez song about playing chess and then eating croutons on the futon. But there was one great standard bearer for the Golden Age's mix of politics and humanity, doctrine and humor. They never made it into the top 40, but their imprint on hip-hop was indelible. They were, and they are, The Coup from Oakland, California. Presto with the communist manifesto Gorillas in the midst of Gamarin and Manesto So What a brother with an afro now Yo, no a flow for the Mac And we the hoes so grow Cause the Lynchin brothers might get hung Rhetoric flowing from the tip of my mouth Say tongue deficit Money spent the glint. Oh my nine as they cut welfare 25% And I In a song called Ride the Fence The Coos frontman, Boots Riley called himself a proletarian, funkadelic parliamentarian. That's about as good a description as you'll find. The group was originally a trio, with one more rapper and DJ Pan the Funkstress. But Boots has always been its driving force. He's one of hip-hop's most underappreciated MCs. His style is very plain. It's a bit like Cubes and Chuck D's, a bit like his Bay Area forebearer, Too Short. But the plainness belies his incredible sensitivity and eloquence. The lyricism isn't showy. There aren't any tongue twisters. But if you listen, it takes your breath away. This track is from the coup's second record, Genocide and Juice, from 1994. It's called Fat Cat's Bigger Fish. It's a story song about robbing some rich people at a gala. But it starts with Boots dropping a fusillade of perfect details, just hilarious little moments that add up to a picture of pain. It's almost 10 o'clock, see, I got a ball of lift for property, so I slip my penny on slopper and promenade out to take up a collection. I got game like I read the directions. I'm wishing that I had an automobile as I feel the cold wind rush past. But let me state that I'm a hustler for real, so you know I got the stolen bus pass. Just as the bus pulls up and I step to the river, so lady look like she drank a 40 or 50. I see my old school partner say his brother got popped. Pay my respects, can you ring the bell? We came to my stop. The street light reflects off the urine on the ground, which reflects off the hamburger sign that turns round, which reflects off the chrome of the BMW, which reflects off the fact that I'm broke. Know what the hell is new? I need new. It's an amazing song, but can I call your attention to this one piece of the lyric? I'll quote it for you in case you missed it on the record. The street light reflects off the piss on the ground, which reflects off the hamburger sign as it turns round, which reflects off the chrome of the BMW, which reflects off the fact that I'm broke. So what the f*** is new? It's typical of Riley's gift. It's a powerful polemic delivered in the form of an accumulation of instantly recognizable human moments. Like if the Communist Manifesto were narrative and funny, and it was about your cousin or your auntie. The coup isn't always funny. Listen to Underdogs from 1998's Steal This Album. The theme's the same. The tone is completely different. There's no flippancy, just deep, profound 
empathy. Beat these fools of peanut butter, big ass glass of water, make the hunger subside. Save the real food for your daughter. You feel like swinging haymakers at a moving truck. You feel like laughing, so it seems like you don't give a fuck. You feel like getting so high, you'll smoke the whole damn crop. You feel like crying, but you think that you might never stop. Homes with no heat stiff in your joint like arthritis. If this was fiction, it'd be easier to write this. Some folks try to front like they so above you. They tear this motherfucker up if they really loved you. And so with you. It's one of the only hip-hop records that's ever made me cry. A song that connects pain and love and revolution clearly and beautifully. And that's on an album that also has a song called Cars and Shoes, which is one of hip-hop's greatest records about having a crappy car. No alignment make it kind of hard to steer though They need to pay me for all these adventures Tell them to my grandkids when I got dentures Making a buck really cost a buck fifty Something that cheap if your car's getting Motherfucker no laughing but it beats the AC transit blue Ish, my car is better than my shoes I mean you can hear the influences here Cube and Short Dog are in there so is Digital Underground, the kind of goofy, serious, Bay Area funk heroes of a couple years before. But there's also real critical theory, a real commitment to community, and some heartbreaking storytelling. I was 16 or so when I heard this song. It's called Me and Jesus the Pimp in a 79 Granada last night. It stunned me. It still stuns me. It's probably the coup's signature work. It's a first-person story about a young man going for a drive with his father who's a pimp who turned his mother out, then killed her. The raindrop giant pearls, God was pissing on the world. Or that old man who was snoring, rolled on over an earl. My temperature gauge, red, cold, and blister. Spinning wheels, maybe piece of asphalt history. This was Jesus' debut out the penitentiary. Fifteen years, but it seemed like a century. See, he went in the pen for some other murder drama. Twelve years old, I wrote him, quote, I want to be a pimp, comma. You accidentally killed my mom's no play of Haitian points. We know how we did that issue, exclamation point. At first it was a set of moves, then it was the truth. His letters were the only friend that I had as a youth. I think when I was 16, I was so caught up in the story that I didn't even think about its allegorical power. The fact that it's about the way that masculinity twists up young men's values. It's a brutal story. It's also a call to arms. I have a six-year-old daughter. When I'm driving her to school sometimes, I play her a song that Boots wrote for his own little girl. It's called Wear Clean Draws. It's as warm and kind as a song can be. It's rich and fatherly and comforting, but it's also a fiery, hilarious indictment of injustice. He says, and this is, this is a quote from the song, The revolution takes time and space, and you as a woman gotta know your place. That's in the front, baby. I'm being blunt, baby. If they get mad, say it's the time of the month, baby. And when I hear that, I laugh to keep from crying. I know you my cookie, baby, and you're too smart. I could read it in the lines of your school bar. True heart, I mean courage, expressed with care. Go on, draw them superheroes with the curly hair. You my daughter, my love, more than kin to me. This for you and the woman that you finna be. Tell that boy he's wrong, girls are strong. Next time at show and tell, play a Mars song. Tell your teacher I said princesses are evil. How they got all their money was they kill people. If somebody hit you, hit them back. 
then negotiate a peace contract. Life is a challenge and you gotta team up. If you play house, pretend that the man clean up. You too busy with the other things you gotta do. It's easy to be angry about the cruelty of the system. And anger is important. But the coup offer more than that. They tell their stories on a human scale. Stories about the change we need, but also stories about the world we share. That's my own shot. I'm here to laugh, love, and drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, and drink liquor, and maybe make a revolution. Now the stain finna end in fisticuffs, but if you got to go here, twist it up. That's your job finna make you piss and cuss, make you have to hustle rent with your pistols up. Now if Uncle Sam bombers in his murder gang, we gon' rise out the ash like that bird of flame. Hoping you take action from the word I bring, but if the police ask, you never heard my name. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Recently in the park, here's your park update, a big pile of dirt showed up. We don't know where this pile of dirt came from, but when it started raining, the city covered the dirt up with a tarp, tucking it in like a little baby taking a nap. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by DJW, Dan Wally. Our theme music is by The Go Team. They provided it to us for free. Thank you, Go Team, along with Memphis Industries Records, their label. My dog's name is Coco, and she is visiting the studio right now. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org, and while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all kinds of cool stuff there. We're also on Twitter, at Bullseye. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. <laughs>